In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent in Westminster. And I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's deputy foreign editor, normally in Dublin, currently at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and in Dublin. We're back after a summer break. Not that it really felt like one. We'll assess the tumultuous developments of August with the shock resignation of Ireland's EU Commissioner Phil Hogan and what it might mean. And we look back at what EU officials at least are calling the wasted summer in the Brexit negotiations. How bad did things get between both sides? And what are the chances of a deal on the future relationship? with less than two months to go before the end of October deadline. We'll also assess the fear and loathing amongst the UK's freight sector over how well or otherwise British ports will be prepared to cope with the new reality on January 1st, deal or no deal. But first, former Commissioner Phil Hogan, Tony, you did two interviews with him in short succession. There was a notably different tone in one than there was in the other, obviously in the latter one he was announcing his resignation. How does it affect what we're talking about in this podcast, Brexit? Was he really incidental to the whole thing or is it a big loss to Irish interests where Brexit is concerned to have lost the Trade Commissioner? I mean, I think first and foremost, it's a, it's a big loss to the European Commission. Anybody I've spoken to here in Brussels uh, has talked about the, the shock at the way he went, um, at the circumstances of his departure and... I mean, they, they would see Phil Hogan in a way perhaps that Irish people wouldn't see him in terms of his his negotiating skills, his political skills and the, the job he had to do as trade commissioner. I spoke to uh, a Dutch official this week who described how when the Dutch government had problems getting CETA, the EU-Canada trade deal, through their parliament because there was a lot of opposition from various interest groups uh, against that deal, uh, Phil Hogan went up to uh, the Netherlands and spoke directly to Dutch MPs and said, look, I understand your concerns, but I am a former agriculture commissioner and I know farmers' concerns well. And I can tell you that, you know, you have no reason to be concerned. The Dutch government was very impressed with the way he conducted that persuasion, if you like. And he's also known to have been very direct with other member states. There's a story told that during a meeting of EU ambassadors that Phil Hogan was addressing, uh, he was telling member states that they really needed to get to grips with the whole uh, Boeing Airbus dispute with the United States and saying that member states had to stop subsidizing Airbus because there were three countries that were doing this, but a lot of uh, other countries who are not involved in Airbus who were suffering the sanctions and tariffs and so on that the US was imposing. And in this meeting, the French ambassador said, well, we have to deliver the same message to Boeing 
And Phil Hogan turned around sharply and said, well, actually, Boeing have dropped the, the subsidies that they were getting. And you should know that. And this was quite a moment of direct diplomacy, if you like, for a commissioner to, to directly address a, an EU ambassador like that. But on the, on the question of Brexit, yes, of course, he wasn't the frontline commissioner involved, the frontline negotiator. That, of course, is Michel Barnier. But Michel Barnier and Phil Hogan were very close uh, allies. They worked very closely together on the negotiations they would meet once a week, either physically or virtually. And of course, Michel Barnier relied on the expertise of the Directorate of Trade within the, the European Commission, which is a hugely powerful directorate. And of course, that uh, directorate was being headed up by Phil Hogan as commissioner. So he was an important player, not the primus inter pares in terms of the personnel on Brexit, but I think he was an important figure. He will be missed because... The job of trade commissioner is not one that you learn on the job. You need to really know an awful lot of detail, and it carries with it a fair amount of political skill and presence. And I think that's why Phil Hogan got the job. He was a one-time, he had he had one term as commissioner under his belt, and part of that term was taken up with the Mercosur trade negotiations. Uh, he was dealing with that through his agriculture brief, of course, but. Uh, he was seen as a very effective operator, and that's why he got the job. Right. Sean, I was talking to somebody during the week who said that a UK minister had remarked to them that there was glee in London over the departure of Phil Hogan. Did you pick up on any of that, or does even the media reflect that, or any briefings reflect that? Well, the, the first thing I thought of when uh, he ran into trouble over this was he has just handed the British a stick to beat him and the EU with, and the Irish government with, uh, because it is taking out an important player, uh, or even at that stage, a couple of weeks back, weakening an important player in this Brexit process. And I expected uh, all kinds of stuff to be coming out in the uh, the tabloid press, uh, notably the uh, Daily Express. I mean, there's a little bit of it, but really not as much as I thought. Uh, it didn't seem to uh, really ignite as a story over here uh, as much, possibly because there's always other things going on over here, probably because most people haven't heard of Phil Hogan because he's a European commissioner and they tend not to pay any attention to anybody who is a European commissioner over here. Uh, and it's just a little bit uh, esoteric and arcane. They also tend not to pay much attention to Ireland generally uh, over here in the, the English media in particular. Uh, and so for all of those things, right. uh, poor old Big Phil couldn't even get hammered in the, the press. Okay. Tony, uh, it is probably the most significant development we've seen since certainly our last podcast because in truth, not a lot has happened. I mean, maybe Michel Barnier, some of his studies of Northern Ireland had rubbed off on him because he said the level playing field, one of the big issues, is not going to go away. And he referred to it as a non-negotiable precondition. It's still the reddest of red lines. He said on fisheries, no progress whatsoever had been made. And he also highlighted the time frame that's left. I mean, things don't look good as we approach some key negotiations this month? They certainly don't. And I don't think I've ever detected the same level of pessimism in Brussels uh, as I do at the moment. Remember, things were supposed to really pick up in July. You had that famous meeting, uh, the virtual meeting between Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen and the other leaders of the institutions, Charles Michel and David Sassoli of the European Parliament. And while there weren't any major breakthroughs in substance on that meeting, they, they certainly, in Brussels, 
got the sense that Boris Johnson wanted a deal and, you know, was still determined to go the extra mile and that, you know, compromise was was not going to just come out of the sky. The British would have to move in certain areas and they agreed as well to intensify the pace of negotiation. And of course, at that stage, the lockdowns were being lifted across Europe and negotiators could meet face to face for the first time. They were going to have smaller and more focused teams of negotiators and hope that as they started to pick at the, 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 the knots that were there, there would be you know, direct political intervention from David Frost, the chief negotiator who was given the mandate from Boris Johnson to get something over the line. So there was a certain expectation that things would start moving in July, but really they didn't. And then when we had one week of formal negotiations in August, things seemed to go into reverse. There were very glum postmortems being delivered by Michel Barnier and other people around Brussels. Some of the other member states were, were starting to get very frustrated and angry at an apparent uh, retreat from the British on what they felt were commitments that the UK had made on fisheries and on the level playing field. And there is a sense, perhaps, that either you know, Bar- Boris Johnson simply hasn't come down on either side of the fence, whether he's going to be a pragmatist and make those painful concessions, or whether he's going to stick to the Brexiteer side of the fence and you know, defiantly hold on to the no deal flag and walk out without a deal at the end of October and let the chips fall where they may. Certainly when he met Michal Martin in Belfast, in rather in Hillsborough on the 13th of August, Michal Martin asked him directly, well, look, with the context of everything that's going on, don't you think that it would be great for all sides if we got a deal? And while Boris Johnson didn't demure from his red lines about the European Court of Justice and uh, the UK not signing up to something that other free trade agreements uh, had for other countries. He certainly did give the impression that he was up for a deal and that that would be reflected in the next round of negotiations, which was a week later. And of course, that was not the way uh, things panned out. Although in response to that, Micheál Martin struck an optimistic note after his meeting with Boris Johnson. And he said, where there's a will, there's a way. And this is a direct quote. It seems to me there is a landing zone if that will is there on both sides, and I think it is. And then he goes on to say, we don't need another shock to the economic system that a no-deal Brexit would give or a suboptimal trade agreement would give our respective economies across Europe, Ireland, and of course within Great Britain. So, Sean, what's the grounds for this optimism? Because David Frost has also said, that's the UK negotiator David Frost, has basically said the EU needs to accept reality that the UK needs to take back control of its laws, borders and waters. Where is Micheál Martin getting this sense of movement or even the magical landing zone? Well, politics is the art of the possible, isn't it, Colin? I mean, political leaders have to be optimistic uh, that there, that a deal is going to get done. Otherwise, what's the point of turning up in the office in the morning? There's so many challenges uh, in the intrays of all political leaders uh, that really the only way to face into a job like that is to approach it with a sense of optimism. And yes, there's still a bit of time. There are still these two rounds of negotiation uh, to be gone through. But really, I think most people are concentrating on next week's uh, negotiations that are taking place here in London uh, because of this, uh, the the clock that is ticking down. If if there isn't a breakthrough next week, uh, then it does look really bad because there simply isn't really much time left Uh, to get this stuff sorted out. What is needed, and and I think Tony has outlined this, and I think we've chatted about this previously, because the issues haven't changed at all during the the summer period. Uh, It's unless there's a political breakthrough 
then the technical issues um, cannot be solved because there is no meeting of minds. And in fact, things seem to be drifting further apart, um, particularly on this issue of state aid. Well, is, is there any uh, grounds for hope there because a possible non-European Court of Justice mechanism for dispute resolution seems to be whispered about at the moment. Could that be an area of some compromise there? Could that give uh, Boris Johnson enough cover? It would take, surely, a movement from their current position on the EU's part to allow for that. Well, that's where the the, the big move would have to be on the EU part. But again, this idea of a dispute resolution mechanism is being whispered about and indeed openly talked about by uh, Brexiters uh, here in the UK as being the potential key for unlocking this particular problem, but it cuts back into this issue of the EU's right to determine its own issues uh, in relation to to state aid and setting its own state aid regime and uh, being in charge of the state aid regime within the European Union, which also has had uh, international impact uh, around the world, simply because the EU is such a big trader. uh, The idea of it uh, having to, to play second fiddle to some newfangled mechanism to accommodate the British would really stick in the craw of Brussels. Secondly, in terms of this issue, uh, there is a growing concern, I think, on the EU side of that the British may be looking to loosen uh, any kind of constraints of state aid in order to invest into particularly new technologies. We know Dominic Cummings is a big fan of new technologies, but a lot of Uh, senior civil servants over here, particularly around the Treasury, like having an EU state aid regime, uh, would rather like to have a British state aid regime so they can point to a set of rules and say, yes, Minister, we know you have a problem in your constituency, but the rules are the rules and we can't spend the money on it. Uh, If there's a loosening of that or even an abolition of a state aid regime because the British haven't set up their own uh, regime at the moment, then uh, politicians fall prey to it. And even if the intention is to invest in new technologies to try and steer the British economy into a, a new wave of dynamism. And some people, notably um, Wolfgang Munchau, have written that there is opportunity for Britain here by slipping out of the EU's often quite restrictive ideas around developing new technologies and allowing new ideas out of the box quite rapidly, and then backing it with taxpayers' money, they could become a much more dynamic economy. And that is starting to occur to more and more people, it would appear, on the EU side. And that's why they've become a lot more concerned about state aid. But in terms of the talks, uh, the EU, when it was first talking about this issue, seemed to be suggesting that Britain would have to follow the EU's state aid regime, but then seems to have changed that to saying, well, no, we would like to see what your state aid regime would be. And that's what Barnier spoke of again when he was speaking to the uh, IIEA in Dublin on Wednesday, saying, look, what we want to see is what your state aid regime is, because we can't possibly open our market until we know uh, what kind of a state aid uh, and subsidy regime we're going to be dealing with. The EU would say they have moved on this issue, and now they need to see the British move uh, on the issue as well. And so far, there has been no sign of any move, except possibly, possibly, and this is really crutching the straw, Uh, There was a bloke came out to have a cigarette outside the Scottish Parliament during the week and was photographed holding a piece of paper that referred to a bill on a United Kingdom internal market rules and regulations. And possibly within that, you might have a a competition authority and possibly a state aid authority. But I'm clutching at straws there because the page was slightly bent. I couldn't see any of the detail (laughs) on it. Uh, And I don't know if there is a kind of state aid regime 
possibly buried in there. But if I was looking for a vehicle to shotgun something into rather quickly, I think that might be the one whenever it comes out. So, Tony, what is the EU looking for when it comes to the UK's position on state aid? Have there been any proposals put to them or are we still in that position where the EU suspects that the UK is nervous about nailing its colours to the mast given the uh, what, what different regimes might be adopted in the different regions post-Brexit? Yes, well, well, the, um, the EU's opening gambit on state aid was that they wanted dynamic alignment, uh, which basically means that the UK would sign up to EU rules uh, going forward. So whenever the EU changed its rules on state aid, then the, the UK would follow suit. Essentially, the EU felt that uh, okay, this might be uh, a big ask for the UK, but it was um, a neat and kind of elegant way of doing it. So the UK would would sign up to EU state aid rules. Its behaviour, if you like, would be monitored by an independent authority in the UK. But in return, the UK would be treated just like any other EU member state when it came to state aid. Now, obviously, that uh, was way too much for the UK to swallow. And I think it's important to stress that the, the EU has quietly dropped any hope of the UK following dynamic alignment with the EU. What they want is a system that works, that is legally robust, that is durable, and that will prevent either side from rigging the rules of the game in order to gain a competitive advantage so that the UK can't be going uh, subsidising an industry uh, which then outcompetes a European uh, rival. To the frustration of people in Brussels, the, the British press and a lot of the, the commentary in, in, the, in Westminster is suggesting that the EU still wants the UK to sign up to EU rules forever and a day. Uh, and that's not really what, what they want. They simply want something that is is that both sides can agree to uh, and is legally robust. And to get that, you know, will take some very, very clever drafting. And that's why people are worried here. It's because there isn't the time to do that clever drafting if this drifts on for the next few weeks. Right. Now, the UK will always say that, first of all, the EU doesn't ask make the same demands of other countries with whom they have free trade agreements. And anyway, the UK was was not an offender on state aid like Germany and France have been in terms of trying to, to pump public money into ailing industries. And the EU accepts that, but they still say, we don't know what Boris Johnson's going to do in future with state aid. State aid is something that Dominic Cummings, uh, his chief advisor, is known to have certain ideas about. And the EU are frankly nervous. And until they see what the UK is going to do precisely on state aid, then they're not going to sign off on, on some kind of agreement. And this, again, gets back to finish the point. This gets back to the complaint from the UK side that the EU is fixated on state aid and is not letting any other issues get boxed off in the meantime. But of course, to the EU, trust goes to the very heart of the future relationship. This is a relationship that's going to last for, for decades, if not generations, and they simply want to get it right. And if the UK is not spelling out what a state aid regime is going to look like, then they simply don't trust the UK in the meantime. Right. So the U- the UK desire to, and the draft legal text they produced showing the areas where the EU and the UK are closer together and maybe close enough to achieve some form of a landing zone and agreement, and the UK desire to proceed to 
tick all of those off the list before coming back to the more difficult issues what is the thinking behind not agreeing anything else because if state aid isn't agreed it, it still remains a block to the uk getting access to the single market why not conclude the business on the other issues well the the, the worry in the eu side is that this will get left to the last minute and countries will be bounced into some kind of fix that they don't like uh, or even that the UK will attempt to make a trade-off between fisheries and state aid saying, okay, we will start to give you greater access uh, on fisheries uh, for your fleets if in turn you agree uh, a looser arrangement uh, on state aid. But the thing is that for the EU, you know, this is profoundly a matter of trust uh, and it cuts right across the whole agreement. Um, and it also is going to feed into what kind of dispute settlement mechanism you have. And that, of course, will be very important uh, for state aid. Right. So uh, is the EU the, holding a, a, an option in reserve of a, a dispute resolution mechanism in which the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, doesn't play a role? Certainly the EU has acknowledged and Michel Barnier has acknowledged publicly that any role for the ECJ is, is difficult for the UK. And you can look at that two ways. One, one way is that, you know, if, if there's any aspect of the future relationship that boils down to how you interpret EU law, then um, it's, a, it's a red line for the EU that the only people who can do that are the judges at the ECJ. Um, but, you know, both sides could agree to some other legal framework where there, there are a set of rules that both sides have signed up to. It's going to be in an international treaty and it would just allow clarity and trust for both sides to make sure that, that the other side isn't rigging the game by subsidizing companies or, or industrial sectors. But the problem is if you, if you do dream up some solution like that, where you expunge any reference to the European Court of Justice or EU law, then that takes a lot of very creative drafting, pages and pages. And because otherwise there, there will be a legal challenge. Uh, that's that's right. the real belief here. That uh, so that's why they think that you can't simply leave this to the 11th hour and you know throw together some some concoction that uh, just won't work and, and won't won't last, you know, won't stand the test of time. Sean, of course, in, in the UK, the there, there are pressures there, political pressures already in existence because of the, the COVID crisis and the, and the damage to the economy. That's, I suppose, that, that's common all over the world. But there are increasingly panicky voices being raised amongst British business and particularly in the area of British freight. You're actually, as we record this on Friday afternoon, you're working on something to do with truckers. It's not a happy camp at the moment. It's not a happy camp and, and the unhappiness is, is uh, just in the last few minutes uh, spread to, to uh, Irish truckers as well. Well, the Irish Exporters Association, to be more precise, uh, who are basically joining the concerns uh, of uh, their colleagues in Britain about the lack of progress uh, of preparedness uh, for what actually happens on uh, the 1st of January, because as, as Tony said earlier, uh, it doesn't matter whether there's a deal or no deal. Um, Britain is leaving that transition period. It's out of the customs union uh, and single market on the 1st of January. And as Barnier said in Dublin again on Wednesday, full EU customs uh, protocols will apply to everything coming from Britain into the European Union. Uh, from that 
day from one minute after midnight. Uh, and so down at the ports, um, which is where I was down at Dover recently, having a look around there, just seeing the uh, the sheer difficulty of trying to build anything because it's a very narrow strip of land. There's just no room to build uh, customs facilities. Um, I, I hadn't realized quite how much additional freight has been flowing through uh, Dover uh, since the beginning of the single market, but it's more than doubled the amount of trucks going through since 1993. And that's even allowing for the opening during that period also of the Channel Tunnel, which also takes an awful lot of freight. So there's a, a huge amount of freight and a huge increase in the amount of freight that is moving across uh, the short straits between Britain and France. Uh, and that is now a choke point if there isn't uh, clarity on the infrastructure. And that's what we've had from uh, this uh, group from led by the Road Haulage Association, but the logistics uh, industry, Logistics UK, the coal store people, the coal chain, Chartered Institute of Logistics, you name it, British International Freight Association. They've all signed this joint letter to uh, Michael Gove uh, saying our concern is growing uh, about the preparedness for transition. They've listed out 13 areas, but a lot of it, the bulk of it, uh, is in uh, IT and systems readiness, because it's one thing uh, to build physical customs sheds. And we were down near Ashford looking at this 27-acre uh, site that they were clearing. Um, at least they were clearing it until a few days ago when they discovered a Saxon burial uh, site there. Right. So the old German ancestors have intervened once again to uh, throw a bit of a spanner in the works there. The, Sax the Saxon car there. industry isn't coming to the rest. Exactly. <laughs> the, Saxon, the Saxon chariot broke down somewhere and, and there you have it. But it I think those were Swabians, uh, to be fair, Colin. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> This place was supposed to store 2,000 trucks and uh, there's a couple of other places that have been earmarked in Kent to build up a capacity uh, as well as um, putting, well, not cones, but actual metal barriers along sections of the motorway, the M20 leading to Dover Port, uh, to park trucks on uh, because they are anticipating a lot of disruption and the planning for that uh, will stay in place until October of next year. So really they're looking at a nine-month uh, period before things settle down uh, and you get a, 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 a smooth flow uh, of freight uh, across uh, the channel. And we're looking at about 10,000 trucks a day going through the port uh, of Dover. Um, apparently, if you lined up all these trucks nose to tail, you'd have a traffic jam 160 kilometres long, uh, which for our Irish friends is almost the distance between Dublin and Waterford. I guess if you started outside the door of RTE, it would be 160 kilometres. Uh, so you're, it's a huge amount of, of freight okay. flowing through there. At the moment, it all flows through without any difficulty. January 1, the EU customs will apply, certainly on the French side. The British have said, uh, we're just going to wave stuff through. Uh, they said, more precisely, we'll be pragmatic about it. But they haven't got anything ready, and it won't be ready until July at the earliest. And that's why they're saying we need uh, to really step up the game, the, the uh, haulage associations. And an awful lot of it comes back to this issue of technology. Uh, they don't have the custom systems in place. There's about 10 new computer systems needed to be commissioned and tested uh, by uh, the, the 1st of January. Uh, a number of them are nowhere near that phase. Uh, and they have to scale up the existing systems to take about 220 million customs declarations. The people haven't been trained uh, to do this, the, the existing uh, freight forwarding industry simply doesn't have the capacity to handle it. So these are real practical on the ground problems. And we are now, I think, 84 days away from 
this happening, uh, there really isn't time there. So if there isn't time on the EU UK negotiating side to uh, draft up all kinds of complex solutions to the problems that are there. We also have a real on the ground problem uh, to do with the actual operation of this uh, border. And, and for, for the British to take back control of their borders, uh, it is a bit of a tall ask, uh, which is why people are once again uh, looking back, perhaps fondly to the um, possibly missed opportunity to uh, look for an extension on this negotiating period right. uh, because of, of COVID, which is called a timeout on everything else. So why not? The Lionel Messi approach, looking for time added on in your contract yeah, negotiation people, as a result of COVID. There was some discussion in the Welsh um, Affairs Committee yesterday, which was dealing with Brexit issues, about the prospects of trying to uh, extend the uh, negotiating period. Uh, some of the experts thought, if there's a will, there's a way. Others thought, well, hang on, this is really... Uh, really messy uh, from a legal point of view. Uh, it would have essentially mean having to start a new set of negotiations under a new negotiating mandate and find some kind of a, a way of saying, but in the meantime, uh, Britain is going to stay within these uh, EU rules for an extra X number of months in order to buy that extra negotiating time, which they think they may need. But again, new mandates, new negotiators, and presumably new political impetus which would require some kind of uh, political uh, resolution at the highest level. And presumably, before we get to that point, we have to go through the drama of a, of a breakdown, which is why people are talking up this idea of the talks breaking down. Uh, or, uh, and there's so much pessimism about, uh, indeed, the, uh, the figure, the quote uh, going around London at, at the moment is a 30 to 40 percent chance uh, of an agreement uh, actually happening. Uh, between the UK and the EU. And then, of course, the uh, British government putting a brave face on it. Um, there's an article by the Spectator's political correspondent in the London Times today uh, saying, headlined, Johnson sees no deal as better than surrender. And the issues to where he's been asked to surrender are state aid and fishing, which, again, is a small industry. Somebody else writing in the Times has, has pointed out, Bruno Waterfield from Brussels, saying that the British fishing industry itself, the, the fishermen catch, the value of that is less than the turnover of Harrods department store here in uh, London. So you're not talking economically significant issues but in terms of fishing, but it is, as we all know, a politically uh, difficult uh, issue. Right. OK, well, time is against you. As I say, we were recording this in the mid-afternoon and you were putting together that package on truckers for our six o'clock news this evening. So let's just bre in brief look ahead to the kind of timetable coming up. We have a round of talks in London next week, running from the 7th to the 11th of September. What happens there? N nothing, potentially, uh, given given what you've said. Uh, Sean and Tony, if you'd maybe pitch in, what's, uh, what's going on from the European side or what the expectations are for next week? Pessimism or optimism? Well, pessimism on the UK side, uh, for sure. Uh, really, there's, it, it's, there's a standoff coming here, and uh, I think next week is going to be pretty critical. It, it might be the week it actually does start to break down. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, what, what I'm hearing is that people are already uh, discounting any major breakthrough next week, and they think it's going to be the first week of October, uh, which will lead up to the uh, October European Council, uh, and that's really when we'll, where we'll start to see some furniture shifting, uh, if at all. I mean, there is a theory that uh, all of this narrative that the EU wants to trap the UK uh, forever 
uh, in its regulatory orbit uh, through state aid and through uh, the level playing field and so on, um, that this is kind of convenient for Boris Johnson to say this and to be let it and to let it be said by British newspapers, uh, knowing full well that the EU has no intention of uh, trying to do that, so that when uh, some kind of deal is reached, uh, Boris Johnson can say, "Look, uh, I told you we wouldn't be trapped." Uh, and here's here's the proof, uh, which would allow him to to make a big uh, kind of concession and U-turn, but then present it as uh, something entirely different. Um, so for us in Brussels next week, I mean, there's going to be a lot of attention, obviously, on uh, who replaces Phil Hogan. And just this afternoon, before we started recording, the cabinet let it be known that Mairead McGuinness, uh, the first vice president of the European Parliament, and Andrew McDowell, who is a former economics advisor to Enda Kenny, and for four years he was uh, in the European Investment Bank in Luxembourg uh, for some of that time at least. He was a, a vice president of the European Investment Bank, so he is the second name being put forward from Dublin. So we'll hear uh, quite soon, I would imagine, who Ursula von der Leyen wants of those two candidates right. and what Given that she asked for the nomination of a woman and a man, you might give yes. Murray McInnes the nose ahead in that race. I mean, I think Mairead McGuinness has to be the favourite because she's, uh, well, I, what I understand is that Ursula von der Leyen uh, has quite a bit of time for her. She she admires what she has done in the European Parliament um, and she is a, a long time and very active MEP. And of course, she's the vice president of the parliament. So, you know, she knows the system in Brussels. She knows how the commission works. She knows how to navigate the various institutions. So I think she would be the favourite uh, over Andrew McDowell, but uh, we'll see what um, Ursula von der Leyen decides in the next while. Right, you'll be keeping your ear to the ground to name-check Mairead McGuinness's former agriculture programme. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> All right. I'd, I'd just say, Colm, on that loud thing, uh, Mairead McGuinness will be quite well known here in the UK as well because she's uh, been on uh, British uh, television and radio quite a lot over these past two years. They've kind of discovered her uh, about two years ago, and uh, she's more or less their favourite MEP when it comes comes to Brexit issues. Yeah. So, N- and not uh, because I, they watch Ear to the Ground. Not because they watch Ear to the Ground, but uh, she's done well on the uh, British media scene, and uh, that will probably count in her favour also. The RTE archive is online, so there you go, British listeners can look at her back catalogue. Okay, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungan, in my front living room watching a sleeping dog in Kildare. From me, Sean Whelan in Westminster. And from me, Tony Connolly in Brussels. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.